If chocolate is your weakness, the real chocolate decadence of Flava Naturals Performance Chocolate can be your strength. I've been searching high and low for cocoa products that deliver meaningful amounts of healthful flavanols with great flavor and minimal sugar. So I'm thrilled to have found Flava Naturals. Extensive research demonstrates the remarkable benefits of daily cocoa flavanols on brain and heart function, including a recent Harvard study showing a 27% reduction in cardiovascular death. But you need to eat five or more ordinary dark chocolate bars every day to match the flavanols consumed in most of these studies. Flava Naturals Performance Dark Chocolate Cocoa Powder and beverages deliver five to nine times the flavanols of typical dark chocolate. Their secret is sourcing premium, high flavanol cocoa beans and processing them naturally. The result is decadent dark chocolate with the flavanol levels needed to fuel brain and cardio performance. I use it every day. For more information and to order, just go to flavanaturals.com. That's flavanaturals.com. Welcome to today's Intelligent Medicine Podcast, a podcast that I've been very much looking forward to because uh, I recently read a book entitled Brain Energy, a revolutionary breakthrough in understanding mental health and improving treatment for anxiety, depression, OCD, PTSD, and more. Yes, that's a mouthful, but uh, it's a revolutionary book by today's guest, uh, his contention and it's a bold one, is that, and I'm quoting, mental disorders, all of them, are metabolic disorders of the brain. Uh, And he is eminently qualified to speak on that subject because Dr. Chris Palmer is a Harvard psychiatrist and researcher. And he's, in this book, uh, developed the first comprehensive theory of what causes mental illness, where he puts it all together into one unifying theory, which is the brain energy theory of mental illness. Uh, He serves as director of the Department of Postgraduate and Continuing Medical Education at McLean Hospital. He's an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and uh, for 25 years has conducted neuroscience research. Uh, He's worked with patients who are treatment resistant, uh, using standard treatments, and lately has employed uh, new paradigms, including the medical ketogenic diet, in the treatment of psychiatric disorders. More on that uh, in this podcast. And uh, he uh, is interested in the roles of metabolism and metabolic interventions on brain health. We'll find out what that's all about with Dr. Palmer. Uh, It's a pleasure having you on on the program. Thank you very much for joining us, and congratulations on the book. Thank you, Dr. Hoffman, for uh, inviting me. And indeed, your your book has already uh, received all kinds of accolades. Uh, actually, you know, from people who've uh, already been on this podcast, uh, Dr. David Perlmutter has glowing things to say about it. Uh, he says brain energy provides a long-awaited unified mechanism underlying a vast spectrum of mental illness conditions. Uh, one of our uh, uh, favorite uh, guests, uh, who is. Uh, Dr. Eric Westman, uh, who's also a fan of low-carb and ketogenic diets, uh, thoroughly endorses the book. And uh, so uh, let's take a look at at this uh, theory. Now, first of all, uh, you described in the beginning of the book uh, an experience which led you to explore this. You had been 
practicing conventional psychiatry, uh, utilizing all the tools at the disposal of a conventional uh, shrink, uh, using medications, obviously, and psychotherapy. Uh, but then you had an experience which is kind of a kind of a, a, a seminal experience for you. It was. <clears throat> and um, so that experience took place in 2016 when one of my longstanding patients with schizoaffective disorder, which is a cross between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, he asked for my help to lose weight. So this is a man who was horribly disabled and tormented by his illness. He had hallucinations and delusions every day of his life since his diagnosis. Um, he had tried 17 different medications, but none of them worked. He was in and out of hospitals. He had been in high-end private pay residential treatment programs. Nothing worked for him. And he was like tens of millions of people who we basically just give up and say, well, he's got a horrible disorder like schizophrenia and there's not a lot we can do. And yes, these people unfortunately suffer. Um, you know, all that treatment caused him to gain over 100 pounds. So he would, Which it typically does because these, these medications often just uh, increase appetite and, and produce a state of lethargy. Absolutely. And they, they can cause type 2 diabetes and, I mean, all sorts of problems with these medications. And those are well-known side effects, and they are deemed worth the, the, you know, worth the risk, or they are just the price that we have to pay to treat these very serious disabling brain disorders. Um, and it's certainly better than having people in prisons or, you know, having people homeless. Um, so he asked for my help to lose weight. And he had already actually tried some other weight loss interventions without success. So we decided to try the ketogenic diet. And, um, you know, within two weeks, not only did he begin losing weight, but I began to notice a powerful antidepressant effect in him pretty quickly. He was making better eye contact with me, talking more, smiling more. Um, it took about six to eight weeks, but at about that six to eight week mark, he spontaneously started reporting to me that his longstanding auditory hallucinations were going away and that his paranoid delusions were also going away. He began to realize that they weren't true and probably never had been. This man went on to lose 160 pounds and has kept it off to this day, six years later. But he was able to do things that he had not been able to do since the time of his diagnosis. He could go out in public and not be paranoid, not be terrified. He was able to complete a certificate program. He was able to move out of his father's home for a period of time. He was able to perform improv in front of a live audience. And that, all of those things were impossible for him. They would have been impossible for him to do prior to the diet. And that experience in many ways upended everything that I knew as a psychiatrist because people aren't supposed to go into remission from schizophrenia, certainly not on less medicine, certainly not from a diet. And that really sent me on a journey to understand what on earth just happened.
and, and we'll explore why, why that might help, but it, it seems that you sort of flip the script on uh, typical descriptions of the ketogenic diet. You know, people lose weight, uh, their numbers improve, blood pressure gets better, blood sugar uh, improves, and there are a variety of benefits. And oh, by the way, as an ancillary benefit, yes, there are mood improvements, but what you've done is you've placed uh, the cart before the horse in effect and said, Maybe, just maybe, this is a, a paradigm shifter for the way we need to look at, med- at uh, mental disorders. Absolutely. And, um, you know, so a lot of people know the keto diet for weight loss or maybe for control of type 2 diabetes or metabolic syndrome. And, um, and for good reason. We have lots of randomized controlled trials documenting its efficacy and safety for all of those conditions. But, um, you know, what some people don't know is that the ketogenic diet is a 100-year-old evidence-based treatment for epilepsy. It can actually stop seizures even when medications fail to. And that was really important to me as a psychiatrist because we use epilepsy treatments every day for, you know, tens of millions of people with psychiatric disorders. They include, you know, medications like Depakote, Tegretol, Lamictal, Topamax, Neurontin, Valium, Clonopin, Xanax, all of those medications. You know, any of your listeners who have heard of those medicines probably know them for their use in psychiatric patients or for mental health conditions. But in fact, those are all epilepsy treatments. And, um, and so once I started, started exploring the research on this, I began to understand that we actually have decades of neuroscience research demonstrating how and why the ketogenic diet stops seizures. It changes neurotransmitters, it decreases brain inflammation, it changes the gut microbiome, it actually changes gene expression in your cells. And we know that all of those types of mechanisms of action could play a powerful role in people with chronic mental disorders. I mean, that's kind of part of the overlap between why we use epilepsy treatments for serious mental disorders. And so armed with all of that information, I began using this. This patient was not a single patient for me. I've used this treatment in dozens of patients now, and I've collaborated with researchers around the world, and I've heard from patients around the world. And the reality is that there are lots of people who are putting their chronic mental disorders into full and complete remission off of all psychiatric medications using treatments like the ketogenic diet. Indeed. And and you, of course, uh, are in a long line of uh, uh, thinkers uh, along these lines, although they've been marginalized, they've been ignored. Uh, there was a, a psychiatrist... Uh, you may be familiar with uh, Dr. Emanuel Abrahamson, who in the 1950s uh, wrote a book uh, which linked, it was entitled Body, Mind, and Sugar, uh, which linked uh, consumption of uh, refined carbohydrates and sugar uh, to mental disorders. And then, of course, in the, in the 1970s, uh, perhaps before your time, there was a book by Bill Dufty entitled Sugar Blues. And so it's, it's been recognized that there is a food-mood connection. Uh, and, uh, I actually had sort of an epiphany myself personally along the lines of what you describe in your book. Uh, oh, it must have been 30 years ago when I was in the early phases of my practice. Uh, a patient came into me cold without any history of psychiatric. 
care intervention. And uh, he was a toll taker in the subways. Now, that's a that's an outmoded job. Now it's all automated in the subways. But uh, in the 70s, it was a lonely job. And you sat in the dark, sometimes with weird hours. And um, you, you caught a lot of abuse from passengers who weren't happy with how the how the token machines were working or, you know, asking you directions and crazy foreign accents. And he came to me and uh, as he began talking, I realized that he had florid schizophrenia. Uh, I'm not a psychiatrist, Mm. but, you know, I knew enough from my psychiatry training that uh, he was delusional. He was talking about how uh, he was on a mission to save the world, that he had uh, delusions of grandeur or a messianic complex and on and on it went. And I said, look, um, I'm going to suggest that. You know, I, I took a dietary history, and it's, he was on a raw foods diet. He was drinking juices, and he was eating salads in the belief somehow that this was going to be beneficial. And I said, we've got to completely change your diet paradigm. We have to introduce protein. You have to reduce your carbohydrates. And oh, by the way, here, you know, here's a multivitamin. I don't remember exactly what I did. But my next move after he left the office was to call a psychiatrist colleague of mine and say, Look, I have a referral for you. Uh, I'm sending a guy to you who definitely needs medication. And, uh, you know, because it was, it was above my pay grade. I wasn't going to put this guy on uh, antipsychotic medication. Uh, so a couple of weeks, I called the guy, my psychiatrist calling, and I said, well, how's my patient doing? I was curious. I said, what medication did you put him on? Because I wanted to learn from him, you know, what combination of medication is most suitable for cases like that. And he said, I didn't put him on anything. I said, what do you mean? He said, well... By the time he came in to see me, he was quite lucid. And I think you'll see when he comes back to see you that he really is quite uh, cogent. <laughs> and indeed, when he came back, he started making sense and his delusions disappeared. And he really normalized without medication. Wow. So, so th- I mean, this is not a one-off that you describe. And certainly, you know, you've been dealing with patients along these lines for a long time. Uh, there is certainly a food mood connection and, and it can be very, very profound, even in cases, you know, not just mild depression uh, or uh, anxiety disorders, but even in the most uh, challenging cases of patients uh, who have uh, uh, schizophrenia. So, so anyway, so, uh, but you also fault um, some of the limitations of, of current psychiatry. And, and I highlight a couple of failures recently uh, and they came you know, in quick succession, there was a, uh, and you've seen the buzz on this one, a paper that challenges one of the foundations of our current treatment of depression, which is the chemical imbalance hypothesis, the serotonin uh, connection and how we use SSRIs to uh, fix a chemical imbalance in the brain. And then there was, quick on, on the heels of that, there was the amyloid hypothesis, which was found to be based on uh, some fraudulent research that these these plaque-busting drugs, which we've spent hundreds of millions of dollars researching and we've now authorized, although they're highly toxic and very, very expensive, um, may, may not be really getting at the root cause of these illnesses, just sort of putting Band-Aids on it. Absolutely. Um, you know, the, it's interesting because, the, you know, the, the first, issue that you discussed, the chemical imbalance one, Um, you know, any good researchers in the mental health field or neuroscience field should, should have known that for like 
15 years. So, so that paper that came out was actually just a review of the literature. It was not new information. <laughs> it was actually information that's already been published and any good scientist and even any good psychiatrist should have already known that. But the reality is they didn't and they weren't telling their patients that. And, um, and you know, the chemical imbalance theory is really just modeled after, well, these medications seem to work, or they at least reduce symptoms in some people. And so if they reduce symptoms in some people, then they must be correcting a chemical imbalance in the brain because they're, you know, they're changing the chemicals, they're changing the neurotransmitters. So that must be the cause of the disorder. And, you know, that's really flawed logic. It, just because a medication reduces symptoms doesn't mean you've identified the cause of the disorder. Mm-hmm. And uh, and we in psychiatry very unfortunately use a lot of flawed logic <laughs> to, to defend how we think about the causes and treatments of these disorders. Um, it, it's sort of an and, empirical science. It's a little bit like, you know, there, there's no blood test for, for depression or there's no blood test for... Uh, obsessive compulsive disorder. It's a little bit of a, a hit or miss thing. And, you know, you try this and you try that and you put together a cocktail of meds and, you know, hopefully you hit the mark. It's a little like throwing darts at the dartboard. It really is. And the re- and the reality is, you know, I've been a psychiatrist now for 27 years. and And I've worked at one of the, you know, you know, best ranked psychiatric hospitals in the world, quite honestly. And if our current approach was working for even 50% of the people that come to us, I wouldn't be out talking about a new model, talking about transforming the mental health field. If what we were doing really worked, I would be delighted because my goal, my passion all along has been to help people who are suffering, to help people with mental disorders who come to me and come to us as a mental health field, asking for help, begging for help, demanding help. And the reality is our treatments fail to work for far too many people, even people with simple diagnoses like depression. If you look at the long-term studies of people with depression getting treatment, only about 10% of them get a full and complete and lasting remission of illness. One in 10, that's it. That means nine in 10 end up with chronic, relapsing, remitting disorders. And we need better answers. We need better solutions. Like, we cannot keep our head in the sand any longer. It, it we need to me, wake up. It reminds <laughs> me a little bit of uh, the movie. Uh, you may recall a movie with uh, Jack Nicholson who portrays a chronically depressed patient, and the movie was entitled As Good As It Gets. And he's sitting in the yeah. waiting room with other psych patients, and they're kind of glum, and he's looking around, and he says... Is this as good as it gets? <laughs> yeah, and it kind of, that no, kind of sums and, it up. and 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 it does sum it up. And tragically, for for millions of people, tens of millions of people who are saying this is not good enough, 
This, I need a better treatment. I want something different. Either we keep them on this pill mill of trying more and more pills, which again, the studies tell us are not going to work for these human beings. That's what the studies tell us. That's what the, the overarching you know, data tells us. Or these people are told, you just have to accept that you have a chronic lifelong disorder and you are never going to recover and you're just going to have to make the most of the life you've got. And, and, and you're just going to have to figure out a way to ignore that crippling depression or ignore those suicidal thoughts or ignore those voices in your head. Just do your best, you know. And, and the reality is that, like, mental disorders are now the leading cause of disability on our planet. People cannot ignore their symptoms. People cannot just move on from these illnesses. They are tormented by their illnesses. They are suffering, and they need better answers. Indeed. And uh, what's interesting about your comprehensive theory is that there, it, it creates a commonality between conditions like depression, obsessive compulsive disorder, even attention deficit disorder, hyperactivity, uh, you name it, and disorders like dementia and Alzheimer's disease. And when it comes to Alzheimer's disease, uh, we now have uh, the pharmaceutical industry all in on plaque-busting drugs, and those drugs might deal with a manifestation of an underlying cause, but not deal with the actual root of the illness. That is correct. I think, you know, I think across the board, when we look at treatments for neuropsychiatric disorders, so whether we're talking psychiatric disorders like ADHD or depression or schizophrenia or some of the neurological disorders like, you know, Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, we have symptomatic treatments at best. That's the best people can usually hope for. Mood stabilizers are not curing bipolar disorder. Mood stabilizers at best might reduce your symptoms. Same with antidepressants, same with anti-anxiety medications, same with all of them. And again, if they worked for even, for even 30, 40, 50% of the people, if they worked in a lasting full remission People are no longer suffering. They're going back to their lives. I wouldn't be here complaining, but I'm complaining. It's somebody's got to stand up for the hundreds of millions of people who are tormented by their illnesses. Somebody's got to stand up for them and just call a spade a spade. And the reality is that the mental health field is failing miserably in addressing the needs of these people. And it's because we're not getting at the root cause, as you suggested. We're, we're shooting in the dark. We're trying out different things. And, and it's not for bad intention. You know, I respect and admire the researchers. Everybody's doing their best. But what I've done in brain energy is take all of that research and put it together in a common sense way. To, re to, to reveal something very new and shocking, and it's that mental disorders are metabolic disorders, just like cardiovascular disease is a metabolic disorder, just like diabetes is a metabolic disorder. 
And once you understand that, once you understand that these are metabolic disorders, we can actually help people recover from mental illness. We don't have to, we, we, we certainly should not be telling them they have a chronic lifelong disorders. And we certainly shouldn't only be administering symptomatic treatments. We should be helping people heal and recover. And I agree that your book really strikes a great balance between being very scholarly with numerous uh, references. And uh, it's incumbent on you to do that because in your position as a professor of psychiatry, uh, it's got to stand up to scrutiny. But it's also very uh, accessible. And you explain things in a a great way so that the lay public can can uh, can can latch on Uh, the uh, when it comes to metabolism, can you define metabolism for us and how it relates to energy and why brain energy matters for that matter. Yeah. It, it, um, so, you know, metabolism is probably one of the most misunderstood <laughs> things. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people think of metabolism as burning calories, right? Are you skinny? Um, or are you fat? It, you know, I have a slow metabolism, yeah, exactly. I have a fast metabolism. I can eat whatever I want and I don't gain weight. It's a simple, it's almost like a, like a dimmer switch, you know, it's either uh, upregulated or downregulated. Yes, and that is what a lot of people think, and there's no question that is true. Your metabolism absolutely does play a role in burning calories, and it also definitely plays a role in how much you weigh and whether you can eat a lot or not and gain or lose weight. But it is so much more than that. It is just so much more than that. So metabolism at its core the simplest way I can define it is that metabolism is a fundamental part of the definition of a living organism. And it is the process that all living organisms use to convert food into energy or building blocks. So food gets converted into energy or building blocks that get used to maintain or grow cells. And then metabolism also includes the management of waste products. So it starts with food, and you need oxygen and water and other things, but it's really about food turning into energy or building blocks, and then it's the management of the waste products. But it's fundamental to living organisms. And so from that sense, I think a lot of the researchers who, who learn about this theory are going to say, well, Chris Palmer, you know, big deal. Like, of course, then if you're taking that kind of a global perspective of metabolism, then of course mental disorders are related to it. So what? Big deal. But once you do a deeper dive into the science and understand, well, like ask basic questions, like, well, what exactly does it mean to have a metabolic problem in a cell or, or what, what exactly Um, you know, what are the connections between obesity and diabetes and cardiovascular disease and mental illness? Like, why are they all connected? How do they connect? You end up getting led to mitochondria. And, And a lot of people know mitochondria as the powerhouse of the cell, but I'm here to tell you they are so, so much more than that. And once you understand mitochondria and all the different things they do in cells, you can actually start to put together the pieces of the puzzle of mental illness. 
So, so they're high, as you describe as you describe in the book. They're highly regulatory, and uh, it paradoxically, uh, you can have a mental condition which is characterized by excessive energy, like hyperactivity or mania, right? But that could still mean that you have a lack of brain energy because paradoxically the inability to control brain impulses is associated with low brain energy, and you might have heightened brain impulses, which create this uh, aberrant behavior. Absolutely. So, it, and that's so, so there are two issues with the brain. So there's no question, the brain is extraordinarily complicated. And some cells in our brains are kind of go signals or go cells, excitatory neurons, and others are stop signals or, you know, they slow things down, inhibitory neurons. And so if you have a metabolic problem in one of those cells, you're going to have a problem in the function of that cell. And so things can, can be either too hot or too cold. And that is really the definition of a mental symptom. It's, it's their brain functions that are either overactive or underactive. And then there are some situations where the brain functions are just completely absent because cells have died or they never developed properly. But for the most part, most mental disorders represent regions of your brain that are either overactive or underactive. And the ultimate, if you look at all of the different research studies that we have, genetics, epigenetics, hormones, um, stress, what can stress and trauma do? The gut microbiome, how's that playing a role? Um, uh, you know, neurotransmitters, how are they playing a role? When you look at all of that, at the end of the day, the only way to connect it all is through mitochondria. And once you do that, the problem actually be- starts to look a lot simpler than we ever imagined. Well, it's, it's a unifying it really, theory. And, uh, you know, as, as most theories go, uh, it's only as, as good as its utility. And, uh, I, I, we, I want to get to, to part two because we divide our podcast, uh, into two parts. In part two, I want to talk about the implications of, uh, this, uh, unified theory on, on brain energy and the role that the mitochondria may play in regulating, uh, behavior and mood. And, uh, some practical, applications of that you know what can we do better what can we avoid doing that's harmful to our brain metabolism that's the theme of brain energy a new book my today's guest dr chris palmer uh chris let's pause for a moment and then when we return uh we can elaborate on uh some answers for brain and mental issues i'm dr ronald hoffman and this is the intelligent medicine podcast <laughs> 